Next week, we're going to talk about God's mercy and His patience, a beautiful attribute that we love and we celebrate. But before we get there, we're going to talk this morning about His justice and His wrath. And let's not hesitate. Let's not be uncomfortable. Let's, let's not be timid. Let's recognize that our God is good, is beautiful. He's glorious. And, and this morning, I, I hope that, that the justice and wrath of God is something that you can find comfort in. I believe this is a comforting reality. So we're going to look this morning at four questions. We're going to look at what is God's wrath? Why is God's wrath justified? How should we feel about God's wrath? And then finally, we'll look at how, how we escape God's wrath. You guys ready? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you for help. We pray that you would help lead us and guide us this morning. Lord, guide our thoughts, guide our feelings and emotions, direct our, our minds to focus on your word, to be open to the teaching of your Holy Spirit. Lord, for those of us that have heard this doctrine misused or misunderstood, for those that have, have, have shied away out of hesitancy or, or a sense of difficulty, I pray, God, that you'd give us grace to, to press in, that you would give us truly eyes to see and ears to hear who you are. God, we love you. We celebrate you in all of your nature. And I pray, God, that we would grow in knowing you more this morning, in following you more closely, and in finding comfort, comfort in you. Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is God's wrath? Let's define some terms. Justice. Justice is upholding the rule of law. Okay? Upholding standards of righteousness. Justice is, is determining and then administering deserved punishment and reward according to those established standards. Okay? So I think we have some concept of what justice is. Wrath is, is God's righteous anger. Okay, it, it's displeasure, even indignation. Some Bible translations say in places. Uh, one guy defined it like this: wrath is vigor, a vigorous upsurge of one's nature against a hostile party. What's God's wrath? It's his vigorous upsurge of his nature. Right? He he gets he gets worked up. He gets angry. God is just. He, he knows right and wrong. He, he upholds right and wrong in his universe. God hates all sin. He hates all evil, all evil acts. And in divine judgment, he's going to punish all sin and evil. Now, God's wrath is a just response. It's, it's a just response to injustice. It's necessary. It's deserved. And it is the good. It's the good outworking of God's sense of justice. And author Pink who we've been looking at this summer, says this, the wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It's the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. God is angry against sin because it is a rebelling against his authority, a wrong done to his inviolable sovereignty. So we read, for instance, that when the Israelites sinned against God, that God told Moses that, that the people had stirred his wrath to burn hot against him. This is what the prophet Nahum says in, in chapter 1. He says that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. 
and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. See, ultimately God's justice and his, his wrath and his judgment are rooted in his identity as judge. God is creator, God is father, God is savior, God is friend, God is also judge. As the creator of all humanity and the world, he designed the world, he sets the standards of righteousness, and he has the right, the responsibility, and the authority to uphold those standards. To judge good and evil. He is, the scriptures say, the judge of all, and he's a judge who is righteous and fair. See, God not only has the authority to decide justice, he has the power to enforce it. Because when it comes to the law, God created the law, he's the judge of the law, and he's the executor of the law, right? He's, he's, you might say, all three branches of the government. God in and of himself is the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch over his universe. Now some of you are thinking, yeah, I know how this goes. God, the Father, is like the strict, unforgiving, sort of short-tempered judge, and Jesus, well, he's the kind, tender savior. He's the one I really want to get to know and spend time with. But... The New Testament says again and again and again. The New Testament makes it clear that Jesus himself is the one that will sit on the judgment seat over every man and woman, judging the living and the dead, good and evil, when he returns at the end of time. Jesus is our judge. Look, because of our inherited sinful nature from Adam and Eve, because of our willful acts against God, we... The scriptures say, are by nature children of wrath. Now, we may understand God upholding justice and, and carrying out judgment against sin. We can understand maybe sort of the, the, the judicial side of it, but, but why anger, right? Like, why is God angry about it? Couldn't, couldn't he sort of just emotionally remove himself and be dispassionate? After all, we tend to want our human judges to be stoic, right? To be unemotional. Think about, think about for a minute the ideal Supreme Court justice. He or she's got to be knowledgeable. We want them to be educated, experienced. They need to have wisdom. They need to be objective. And don't we sort of want our Supreme Court justices to be a little bit emotionless, you might say? Right? Like, we don't want Clarice Thomas, like, yelling at people in the middle of a Supreme Court hearing. We don't want to read that, that Sonia Sotomayor, like, made a sour face in the midst of, of testimony. Or that John Roberts is like tweeting nasty posts in the middle of, of a Supreme Court hearing. Like, we don't want that, right? We'd wonder, are these people truly stable? Are they truly objective? We want our judges to be stoic, somewhat emotionless, because we think that's what it means to be fair. If they're going to be fair, they have to be removed. We don't want them getting caught up. Now look, judges do need to know the law. They do need to be objective to carry out justice. But as J.I. Packer points out, the idea that a good judge is cold and dispassionate is a modern idea that's not ultimately rooted in the Bible. Remember, as we learned when we talked about God's immutability, God's unchangeableness, he does have emotion, he does respond, but it's different than human emotion. And so his anger is different than our anger. It's just, it's good. So uh, John Downham wrote in the 17th century in his book, The Cure for Unjust Anger, he talks about the five marks of just anger. And the reason I know that is because Pastor Matt wrote a blog about it. So thank you. <laughs> and, and he talks about what, it, what just anger is and unjust anger. He says in order for anger to be just, it's got to have five things. It's got to be a response to something that's truly unjust. It should be expressed in a godly manner. It should be directed towards the right person. 
It should last for an appropriate amount of time, and it should seek a holy goal. Now, God and God alone always fulfills all of those aspects of, of anger because his anger is always just, unlike you and I. And so if we think about God's anger and God's wrath according to human standards, of course it's going to make us uncomfortable. Because I don't know about you, but when I get angry, I don't meet those five expectations, right? You can ask my kids. You can ask them after service what we just, it's family lore is just called the cup incident, right? And so when my kids were young and my wife was working and I was making dinner and sit, sit down at the time, it was probably only three kids. And we had these colored kid cups that each color was designated for a kid and they were very useful in that aspect. But I swear these things were like made by some conniving person and they were top heavy and they consistently would tip over. Right. And, and I, of course, all kids spill milk. But I think these things were designed just to frustrate parents. They were taught like, why can nobody make a kid's cup that's heavier and wider on the bottom so that it doesn't tip over? And so after this had happened, like for the you know umpteenth time, I, I lost it and I lost my temper. And, and I grabbed the kids cups after the milk had spilled and I opened the sliding glass door onto the deck. And one by one, I threw them down on the deck, still full of milk. At least two of them were. And smashing them on the, just obliterating these plastic cups, spraying milk everywhere, right? I, I lost my temper. I was angry. God's not like that. See, if that's how you picture God's wrath, when we read about God's wrath in the Bible, you are sorely mistaken. God gets angry, but his anger is always restrained. His anger is always under his control. Unlike you and I often. See, God's commitment and God's passion for righteousness and justice do stir him to anger and to wrath, but he never loses his temper. He never acts rashly or impulsively. He doesn't go into a rage because his pride is wounded. He's not acting out of impulse or impatience or irritation. He is always righteous in his indignation. And his anger always meets those five criteria. He's always reacting to something that's truly unjust. He's expressing himself in a, in a godly and good manner. He's directing it toward the right person. It lasts for an appropriate amount of time. And it's ultimately seeking a holy goal of, of justice and, and glory. His glory. And so while, yes, God is fair. God is objective. But he is not cold. And he is by no means dispassionate towards people. Towards his humanity. God is deeply invested in humanity. He cares deeply. God loves all that is righteous. He hates all that is evil. And so of course, of course God is going to be angry when his law is violated. When evil prevails. When, when creatures that he created, that he loves, when they harm themselves and other people. Yeah, he's going to get upset about that. And here's the thing. Would you really want an emotionless God? Would you want a God that didn't care? The Psalms say that God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. And I I think that's a good thing. I am glad for God's heart. We see references and examples of God's wrath all over the Bible. But this doctrine is carefully laid out in the book of Romans. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, we're going to look at a few different passages as we chip away this morning. Turn turn to Romans. We're going to start off in chapter 2. 
Romans is often seen as the book that most clearly outlines the gospel and Christian doctrine. And so it should be no surprise that as part of that, we, we read again and again references and explanations about God's judgment and God's wrath. It's a central theme in the Bible. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul will write that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And, and chapter 1 then goes on to outline the ungodliness and the unrighteousness that God has wrath against. And listen to some of the things listed in chapter 1. Lust, impurity, dishonoring our bodies, false worship, sexual perversion, shameless acts, a debased mind, evil, coveting, malice, envy, murder, listing strife, deceit, gossip, boasting, inventing evil, disobeying parents. You didn't see that one coming in the list, did you? People that are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now look, it's far too easy to read a list like is presented in chapter 1 and to begin looking around or, or looking outside of these walls and pointing fingers at other people, right? And so the scriptures are clear to say this in chapter 2, verse 3. You think you can judge other people for their sins when you yourself do the same things also? Do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? When you're pointing your finger at everybody else and not analyzing and evaluating your own heart. And then we pick up, read with me in in chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Brothers, we got to do something about that. Check. One, two. Romans 2, 8 says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Friends, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that for those who persist with a stubborn and unrepentant heart, they are storing up for themselves wrath on the day of wrath. This is the day when Jesus returns, and yes, all things will be made new, but he will also come in judgment. It says that the the righteous judgment of God will be revealed on that day. And on that day, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Those who through faith have persisted in doing good, through faith in the Lord Jesus, through the infilling of the Holy Spirit, those who have persisted in doing good will receive honor and peace and eternal life. But those who are self-seeking, isn't that a poignant and so accurate definition of sin? Those who, who seek themselves, seek their own good, seek their own will, seek their own pleasure, seek their own honor. Those who don't obey God's truth will receive God's wrath and God's fury Affliction and distress, ultimately eternal death. 
And so, yes, God's wrath is real, but it is good. It is good, and, and I believe that we should live in light of it. So, so first question, what is God's wrath? It's his response, his anger against sin, injustice, and evil. Well, secondly, we ask, and some of you are thinking right now, I know, because I thought it this week, is God's wrath justified? Right? Is it right for God to uphold justice, to judge evil, and to pour out wrath against sin? Because at times, the wrath of God does make us feel uncomfortable. At times, you feel resentful about the wrath of God, or you may feel like it's something you need to apologize to, right? Like I said earlier, it's that thing you don't want people to find out about your spouse or about your kid when you're introducing them at the party. We hope no one notices. But the justice and the wrath of God is a good thing, and I believe, I believe that most people even want God to be wrathful. See, most people want to live in a world where evil is punished and justice prevails. That's why superhero movies make so much money. Because people deep down want a wrathful God, right? We want to watch a movie, read a book about a good guy and a bad guy, and we want to see the bad guy brought to justice. We want to see the Avengers put an end to Thanos. We want to see the Justice League defeat Darkseid, right? We root for that. They're they're literally called the Avengers, they're avenging wrong. They're literally called the Justice League, seeking to uphold justice. It, 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 it beats with our heart. Right? Revenge movies. How many movies are there where the opening scene is this ordinary guy, or you read a book about this ordinary guy, and something happens to his family, his family gets attacked, and what happens? Well, first, there's a training sequence, right? We watch the training montage. Well, he prepares himself to do what? To avenge the wrong done against him. To, to bring justice. Deep down, we all want justice. And I don't think it's the thought of God's wrath that makes us uncomfortable. I think it's the thought of God's wrath against us that we don't like so much. You follow me? Because I, I think ultimately, when we think about God's wrath against us, there's another thing that troubles us. Does the punishment really fit the crime? Right? We, we may even wonder that about others. Come on, God. Does, does the punishment really fit the crime? Because at times when we read about God's wrath, let's be honest, it feels like an overreaction. Isn't God's wrath and and judgment and the sentence of hell, isn't it all just a, a little too much? Is it really justified after all? Come on, God, we're only human. Can't you cut us a little slack? But but I think if we feel this way, it's because we underestimate the gravity of sin. We underestimate the offense, the horror. The danger of our sin against a good and loving creator. And there's all these ways to understand sin in the Bible. Sin is sickness leading to death. Sin is, is a state of brokenness. It's, it's failure. Sin is slavery that we're bound to. But make no mistake about it. Sin is also blatant, willful, hostile rebellion against a good creator that wants nothing more than the, the best for his creatures. And so the Bible says that sinners are God's enemies. And that requires judgment. That requires judgment. See, if God is good, if he is truly fair, if he's a a just judge, which he is, that means that we are either overestimating the severity of God's wrath or we are underestimating the severity of our sin. You follow that? Which do you think it is? Do you think we're more likely to overestimate God's wrath or to underestimate the severity of our sin? Because we know that ultimately the punishment 
for sin and, and the severity of sin must be equal because God's good and right. So let's not, let's not underestimate what our, tr- our sin truly is to God and to His universe. We need to trust. Friends, trust that God is, is just. You might never be fully at peace with the wrath of God, but, but you can, and we need to trust that God is just and, and that His judgment is, is true, and we can trust in that. Hear the words of Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock, that's our, that's our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all of His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without inequity, just and upright is He. And so we can take peace in that. And whatever, whatever struggles you have or discomfort you have, take peace that our rock is just and upright. Because remember, we've seen again and again throughout our series that all of God's attributes work in unity and consistency with one another. God's wrath does not undermine His love. It's not like, well, if, if God were only more loving, if He were only a little bit more good, then we wouldn't have to worry about all this, this wrath and, and judgment stuff. God's love and His goodness are not opposed to His justice and His wrath. These things complement one another and work together. In fact, it is God's love for what is good that stirs him to hate what is evil. Friends, listen, God will not allow, he will not allow evil and harm against all that he loves to go unchecked in his universe. He's not going to do it. The scriptures teach that God not only hates evil, he hates evildoers and wicked men. The love of God requires his wrath against sin and sinners. It is God's love that stirs him to anger. And so where we read in the scriptures or where we see displays of God's wrath, know that that is the necessary, that is the deserved, and that is the good outworking of his love and his justice. Think for a minute, what is the alternative? If we sought to remove this aspect of the nature of God from him, what what is the alternative? How would we prefer that God respond to sin, evil, and rebellion against him? Would we prefer that he approve of it? That he simply treat disobedience no different from obedience? Or or would we want a God who's morally indifferent? Would you like that? A God who just looked the other way and ignored it and pretended that his standards were not being violated, that people were not being harmed, that evil was not prevailing in his universe? Is that what you want? See, when we think about the eternity, the eternative then the goodness and the justice of God that opposes evil, that protects good, that brings justice to this world, that begins to sound kind of comforting, doesn't it? And we maybe can begin to celebrate and praise God for this attribute. And as we are all too aware, and as I, as I say, you only have to live on, on earth for 15, 20 minutes before you realize that there is wickedness. That there's awful evil and terrible injustice in God's world. And God is angry about it. And, and when I was driving in my car and I, and I heard on WBAL about the police officer down in, in, in Baltimore, I forget, maybe it was Howard County, who murdered his stepson and stuffed him in the attic, I was angry and God is angry. Did you, did you hear the news report about the Taliban when the U.S. forces pulled out the Taliban executing Afghani special forces? Now, you could think whatever you want about politics and, and about the military. But, but reading about that, reading about, about those men being executed at the hand of, of, of 
this warring party. You read about the assassination that happened in Haiti and the unrest and the violent unraveling and the unraveling of the economy and, and, and a nation that, that for, for decades, you think, how can it get any worse? God's angry about this injustice in his world. Gang violence and sex slavery and child abuse and child pornography and death itself and Satan himself. You better believe God is angry. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a comforting thing. Again, this is what Pastor Author Pink says. He says, how could he, who is the sum of all excellency, look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice? Wisdom and folly. How could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity toward it? How could he who delights only in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? The very nature of God makes hell as real a reality, as imperatively and eternally requisite as heaven is. Amen. Why is God's wrath justified? Because God is good and God will uphold justice. Sin is dangerous. It makes him angry. Sin is evil and evil deserves punishment. And so there's no getting around it. God's wrath is real. It cannot be ignored. God will not sit around and allow injustice to remain in his universe. We read in in Romans 2 a minute ago that God's judgment is righteous. We see that again in 2 Thessalonians Chapter 1, look at what again the Word of God says, beginning in verse 5 and then going to verse 7. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Friends, the love and goodness of God cannot be ignored and the the justice and the holiness and the righteousness of God cannot be either. And the day is coming when our Lord Jesus will come coming again, coming again for his children to redeem us, to rescue us. And those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will receive God's judgment. And it says we'll be driven away from the presence of the Lord. And so, yes, this, this wrath is justified. But, but the third question is then, okay, coming to this realization, how, how do we process it? How do we deal with it? How do we ultimately feel about it? How, how do I feel about the wrath of God, about these realities, about what the Word unpacks? First of all, I would submit to you that outside of God's grace, hearing and reading and, and coming to grips with the reality of, of God's anger and judgment against sin should cause you to be terrified. I, I, I don't like to watch horror movies. I'd much rather watch romantic comedy. I got plenty in this world to be scared of. I, I do not need to watch a movie to make me afraid. The scriptures say that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so, and so this morning, if, if a sense of fear is being stirred up in you because you think you might be facing God's wrath, then the call is to turn. 
to turn from those selfish ways, to repent, to fall down and to cry out for God for mercy. Because I will tell you this, he is eager. He is eager to forgive. He is eager to turn his wrath away from you. And so first, the first feeling you might have is, is one of terror. Secondly, you, you might be thankful. Because if you're here this morning and you have previously understood the depth of your sin, you, you know how harmful it is. You see your hostility against God. You know how offensive and how dangerous a life outside of, of Christ can be. And you've come to Him. You know that you're forgiven. And you know that God's wrath no longer rests in you. And so I pray and hope that a teaching and a study and an awareness of God's wrath stirs gratitude in you, stirs joy in you. That we have been forgiven, that we now have new life in Christ. And that our fate is not one of terror. Our fate is one of of joy and peace and hope in the presence of our good and loving Father. Amen? But thirdly, how do we feel about God's wrath? I think it brings sadness. The scriptures teach that God does not delight in the death of the wicked and neither should we. And every person created by God who dies and faces God's wrath is the cause for sorrow. And, And God is full of sorrow, and and so should we. And so we don't celebrate, we don't gloat over the judgment of God on sinners. It brings sadness. And ultimately, that sadness should compel us. I think, fourthly, how do we feel about the wrath of God? We should feel compelled, compelled to share the message of hope, compelled to share with people the only escape plan that they can ever have. Through God's grace revealed in, in Jesus and his love for us, the forgiveness and the new life that we have, it should compel us to pray, to share, to speak, to pass on the hope that we have found, that they too could be relieved of any terror that they might have and find joy and thankfulness in Christ. But fifthly, and I want to spend a little more time on this, I, I think, and I've mentioned this already, I think that, I think that the wrath of God should cause us to feel so comforted I want us to be comforted this morning. There's immeasurable peace in knowing that we have a good and righteous judge overseeing the universe. Because many of us, ourselves, or our loved ones, have been wronged. We've seen hurt. We've been oppressed or mistreated. We've seen how much it damage it does when we're lied to, when we're sinned against. And often it seems that there is no retribution in this life. There is no justice in this life. And we can point again and again and again to to instances of harm and injustice on ourselves and our loved ones in the news. And we think, where is justice? It happened days ago or, or years ago and nothing ever happened. And when you are wronged or when you are hurt, there is comfort in knowing that God sees That God knows and that God will bring all things to justice. And rather than carry around the pain, rather than grow cold or hard, rather than, God forbid, take matters into your own hands and seek revenge. The doctrine of God's justice and wrath relieves us, relieves us to to let it go. To forgive, to move on. Here we go. Do I need a different mic or uh, stand in a different place? Or How about if I stand over here? If you still have your Bible open to Romans, flip over to chapter 12. I, I told you that the doctrine of God's wrath is all over the book of Romans. In chapter 12, some of you know that chapter 12, at, at that point, 
Paul's now into like the practical Christian living part of it, right? So he's built a foundation of an understanding of, of God's justice and God's mercy. He's outlined the gospel. And in verse 12, he's saying, okay, here's how you live in light of this. All right. So pick up with me in Romans chapter 12 in verse 17. I think it'll be on the screen as well. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Friends, we are told some things in here that we are to do as Christians that do not make sense. Because I will tell you this, that kindness toward an enemy is just dumb. Seeking peace with other sinners is just futile. And the idea that, that we can forgive people, it's just, it's just an empty expression. Unless, unless we can trust in, unless we can find comfort in the justice and wrath of God. The, the justice and wrath of God is the only way you can ever truly be kind to an enemy. It's the only way you can truly forgive someone that's harmed you. It's the only way you can truly seek peace with people around you. Now look, I don't think this means, I don't think this teaching here means that Christians are to be pushovers or that we just don't care about sin or that we don't care about injustice because as beings created in God's image, we can and should reflect the attributes of God and we reflect God's justice and God's wrath. We are to imitate God, but we only imitate this characteristic in a limited way. And so, yes, in a limited way, it is good and right for you to get angry at injustice, at sin, at evil. And there are many, many awful things in this world that do and that should stir us to anger. I remember the very first time I was, I was a young man. I remember the very first time I was ever openly and blatantly faced with the fact that a good friend of mine had lied to me. Not only had he lied to me, but I had defended him amongst the rest of our friends that, no, no, that didn't happen He's telling the truth. And then it came out and he eventually admitted, no, I was lying. And I remember that feeling of, of anger. I, w- I would say righteous anger, right? And for those that have, you, that have suffered dearly, that have, have faced abuse or been cheated on or been hurt, been lied to, it is appropriate. It is healthy. It is even, I would say, necessary to be angry at the wrongs done to you and your loved ones. I have, in fact, sat with people and counseled them. You should be angry about that. Like, let yourself be angry. Let yourself be upset. Now, that doesn't mean you stay there. It doesn't mean you dwell on it. It doesn't mean you lay up at night thinking about how you're going to get revenge, right? But both the Old Testament and the New Testament instruct us, be angry and do not sin. And we have to remember both parts of that. We have to keep in mind that our anger is never fully pure and never fully righteous like God's anger is. Right? You think back to those five criteria of just anger. We, we can be angry, but we have to be careful and, and not sin. Because far too often we're angry about something that's not truly unjust, or we express it in an ungodly manner, or direct, do we direct our anger towards the wrong person, right? You're not really angry at your kids, but it just comes out at them, or it lasts for an inappropriate amount of time, or ultimately your anger is not seeking a holy goal. And so it's okay to be angry, but, but don't sin. Don't let it fester. 
Don't carry it around because it will quickly, so quickly get out of control. And here's the, here's the reality. Most of the time, nine times out of ten, you do not have the right, you do not have the authority, you do not have the power to carry out retribution on your own. We can't enact punishment on every injustice in the world. Some of us would like to do that. right? Just give me the tools. I'll take care of it. I'll clean it up. Now, you may be given a limited sphere of authority if you're a parent, if you're a supervisor. You have a limited sphere of authority, even civil authorities, right? Governors and judges and police officers have limited authority. But we don't walk around seeking to carry out retribution or trying to right every wrong in the world against us, against our loved ones. Why? Because vengeance, we read, judgment is in God's hands. And Paul there, when he writes that, is quoting from Deuteronomy. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It belongs to him. Don't take something from him that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. And hear this. Vengeance and judgment belong to God. Vengeance and judgment are in his hands because only God's hands are big enough to carry it. That's why it belongs to him. And so our call in the midst of hurt and pain and the brokenness of this world is to rest in a God that is all-knowing, that is all-powerful, that is all-good and wise, who is perfectly just, and to know that only He can carry out judgment, only He can be perfectly objective and fair. And so you might find yourself at certain instances rightly offended, rightly hurt, rightly angry at sin, at evil, at injustice in the world, and so acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. And turn it over to God. And only then can you truly forgive. Only then can you truly, I believe, let it go. Turn injustice over to God and leave it to His wrath. And, and be comforted. Be comforted that vengeance and judgment belong to God. How, how should we feel this morning as, as broken, frail, fallen humans? Children of God trying to know Him, grow in Him, understand Him. How do we feel about the wrath of God? I think... I think we should be terrified if we're not in Christ, if we don't have forgiveness. I, I think we should be thankful if we do. I think we should be sad for those who still face the judgment of God. I think we should be compelled to share the hope of Christ and the freedom of God's mercy. And I think we should be comforted. Comforted in a world that is still broken, still, still way, way too dark. Comforted by God's justice and wrath. So fourthly, how do we escape how do we escape God's wrath? Again, we're going to look at Romans. Flip back, if you would, to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 6. We see the beautiful gospel. And we see its relevance to what Christ did for us. Its relevance to the judgment and the, and the righteous deserved anger of God. And in one of, the, one of the most beautiful articulations of the good news of Christianity, we read this in chapter 5. And I'm going to pick up actually in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Guys, the love of God is amazing. It's abundant. It is overflowing. 
And the Bible says, here's how you know that. Because when you were still weak, when you were still rebelling against Him, when you were uninterested in God, when you were hostile towards God, in fact, when you deserved His wrath, then, in that state, at that time, God sent His Son, Jesus, for you. That's how we know how much God loves us. It's easy to love somebody when they're lovable, when they're deserving, when they love you back. But God loved us when we were His enemies. And He sent Christ, He sent His own Son to die for us. And Jesus took our sins, He took your wrongs, He took all of your, your filthy thoughts, took all of your, your inappropriate words, took, took all of your disobedient actions. Jesus took that record on Himself. And he, he faced the punishment of God. How, how did the punishment of God manifest in death? In, in, in a limited time on the cross, Jesus suffered eternal death and eternal judgment for us, taking that on. And Jesus knew what he was facing. That's why if you read in the Gospels, on the night before his death, he was in the garden on his knees, sweating, pleading with God, crying out to God. What did, what did, he, what did he pray? He said, God, let this cup pass from me. What's that reference to cup? In the Old Testament, we read about drinking the cup of God's wrath. It's a metaphor. This idea that, that the wrath of God had to be, had to be swallowed. And, and Jesus begged, be, he begged his father, God, let this cup pass me from me. Is there another way? And when he finally came to the realization, the only way to save you and I was to, to drink up the wrath of God, he said, okay. And he willingly walked to the cross. He knew what he was doing. He was, as it says in Romans 3, Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a sacrifice. Okay? When, when someone is offended, when a nation is, is, is angry or rightfully upset, you offer them a, a propitiatory sacrifice to, to atone for, to appease the judgment. Propitiation means that, that the sacrifice averts the wrath of a, of a person, of a, of a party that is rightfully wronged. And Jesus did that for us. And, and, and look, if, if you're still struggling, if, if you're still having a hard time with these scriptures or you don't want to hear this, let me tell you this. The, the cross of Jesus, the tomb of Jesus, Jesus substitute death on the cross for us, taking our sins, it makes zero sense without understanding God's wrath. Without God's wrath, the cross is foolishness, it's meaningless, and it is powerless. It's because of God's judgment that Jesus died for us on the cross. And so thank God. Thank God. Because the Father would have never sent the Son. The Son would have never come if there was another way. But there is no other way. Because judgment must be satisfied. Wrath must be appeased. And so now we, in faith, those who trust in Jesus as Savior, now we have been justified. We've been declared just and right because of His blood, because of His atonement. And so it says in verse 9, how much more now will we be saved from His wrath? See, we are no longer enemies. Now God looks at you and He says, you're a friend. You're a daughter. You're a sister. Come close. Sit with me. Be with me. Walk with me. Live in my kingdom. Be a part of my family for all of eternity because we have been reconciled back to God as His children. And not only reconciled, but rescued, born again to a new life through the resurrection. Through the resurrection of Jesus. 
I, I hope that you are loving learning about our God because he, he is deep and he is wide and he is eternal. We'll spend all of eternity learning new things and, and uncovering new gems about God. But we cannot overlook his justice, his judgment, and his wrath as we seek to do that. What is God's wrath? As we saw, it's his just response. His, his righteous anger against sin, injustice, and evil. And yes, it's justified. Why is it justified? Because God is good. Because he will uphold justice. Because he knows that sin is dangerous. Because it makes him angry. Because sin is evil and evil deserves punishment. And so as we said, how, how do we feel? I pray this morning that, that, that you're not terrified because I, I pray that you found hope and found rescue in Christ. And that you can come to him and be relieved of that, of that deep, deep burden. And that you'd be compelled, compelled to share this hope, to share this reality, and that you'd be comforted that the wrongs that you've suffered, the wrongs that your loved ones have suffered, that, that seem like they will never meet a just end, seem like the person will never receive justice, know that, that God avenges wrongs. That justice will be fulfilled. And some will be forgiven. And some of the people that have done the most destruction in this life the thief that hung next to Jesus on the cross, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And he never faced the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus soaked it up for him. And so, and so justice will either be fulfilled on the individual or through the cross of Christ. And so we can find comfort in that. And we can look to Christ who is our only escape. And through faith in his saving work, we can be forgiven. And so, so friends, let's go to him as we have so many times before. Go to him. Trust him this morning for the first time. Fall on him this morning for the first time or again. And confess your sins. Cry out to Him and give Him thanks for your forgiveness. Celebrate His joy. Listen, as the worship teams comes, we're going to celebrate and rejoice in the judgment of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. And I would call you to, to look to Him for comfort, to look to Him for forgiveness, to look for Him for strength, to walk with God even through a difficult world. Stand with me. And hear the words of Jesus. Man, as we prepare to sing, let's sing about what Jesus says here in John, in chapter 3 and in chapter 5. Our Savior says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope of Christ. We thank you that through faith and through the work of Christ, we can see life. That we can be rescued from, from the wrath of God. That we will not come into judgment, but we've passed into life. And so God, we believe in you. We trust in you. And we ask you to give us faith. Stir us to comfort, to joy. Stir us to, to obedience and to faith. Hear your children as we sing to you. Hear us, Lord. Come Holy Spirit.